0: This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host physician assistant, Lisa DeAndre Linnell. With resources provided by the Affordable Care Act, federal officials are cracking down on Medicare fraud. Many physician assistants are simply confused. There are many misunderstandings and inconsistent rule interpretations which account for the vast majority of billing mistakes made by PAs. Regardless, it's time for physician assistants to learn and understand how to correctly bill for Medicare services. You're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMDXM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Michael Poe, Vice President of Health Systems and Reimbursement Policy for the American Academy of Physician Assistants. And he's here today to discuss physician assistants and Medicare. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Partners in Practice.
1: Hi Lisa, thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Michael, could you give us the history of how Medicare coverage for physician assistants has evolved over the years?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, Medicare started in the mid-60s when PAs were first coming onto the scene. And in the early part of Medicare, there were very few regulatory opportunities for PAs to participate in the program. So they were lumped in with a number of other healthcare professionals. In the Mid-70s, PAs began to get their own identity within Medicare and began to get their own coverage policy regulations and rules. And as you may know, PAs early on were doing more limited things, but as their scope of practice began to increase and expand, Medicare recognized that and began to put together certain rules and regulations that were specific to physician assistants and their ability to treat Medicare patients. So at the present time, we've evolved to a system whereby PAs are doing virtually the same kinds of services that physicians provide to their patients.
0: Well, for PAs to be able to bill under Medicare was a big step in the growth of the PA profession. But it's difficult to bill for Medicare. And I think a lot of PAs just misunderstand, and there's different state interpretations. So I'd like to kind of break it down a little bit to the baseline of Medicare and PAs. And I'm a new PA, let's say, and today I want to enroll in Medicare. There's a lot of acronyms and a lot of distinct rules, but can we start with just the basics of the NPI? What is it, and why do I need it?
1: Sure. Medicare is a very regulatory, intense process, and it's important for every healthcare professional and the folks who do the billing and coding to understand what the rules are, as you mentioned earlier, to avoid fraud and abuse, but also to maximize the reimbursement that PAs are eligible for under the program. In terms of the NPI number, it stands for the National Provider Identifier Number, and this is the one 10 digit number that every clinically practicing healthcare professional in the country has to have. It's an identification number. It doesn't tell you anything about who you are, whether you're a PA or a physician, it doesn't tell what specialty you work in, but it's your one identifier in the healthcare system. And without an NPI number, no healthcare professional can do anything electronically in the system that is, electronic payments or claims, ordering DME, for example, or a consult for a patient. Nothing happens electronically in the system unless that healthcare professional has an NPI number assigned to them.
0: Well, what if I don't see Medicare patients?
1: Doesn't really matter. It's for all healthcare providers no matter which type of patient you're seeing. So, Medicare and other payers realized that there was a great deal of confusion in the system, and they want the ability to identify each healthcare professional. So, the NPI number is a recognizable number that's used by Medicare, Medicaid, Workers' Comp. And a vast array of private payers.
0: Does this NPI number identify me whether I have multiple jobs or if I go to a new job? Is it the same NPI number?
1: Well, in theory, you're supposed to have one NPI number that follows you throughout your medical career. Now, that can change based on some issues such as fraud and abuse. They sometimes eliminate numbers based on that process. But the fact is this should be the one number that stays with you irrespective of job change or changing locations or even changing a different state.
0: What about a Medicare PIN? Where does that fall in here?
1: The Medicare PIN number used to be the one identifier in the Medicare system. The NPI number is supposed to, in theory, take away the need for a PIN number, a UPIN number, and the different numbers that private healthcare care companies gave to physician assistants and other healthcare care professionals. So all those should be wiped away in favor of the NPI number.
0: All right. Now I'm starting to understand. So now we get rid of the PIN. I have my NPI number. Then all of a sudden, here comes PICOS. Now, what's that?
1: Yeah, PICO stands for the Provider Enrollment Chain and Ownership System, and it's really a system of making sure that Medicare can identify you within its software system so that when you go to order or refer patients to different services or to order different kinds of DME, durable medical equipment, for example, you can be tracked in the system. And Medicare is very particular in terms of making sure that PAs and other healthcare professionals are current with all of their information. So if you've changed jobs, if you've moved to a different state, if you've done any kind of changing, Medicare wants you to update your information through the PICO system. And if they don't have the updated information, your claims will not be processed.
0: So let's sum this up. If you're a PA practicing or you're a PA about to practice, you need to make sure you have an NPI number and you need to make sure you're in the PICO system to practice properly. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And Medicare will not allow you to enroll in their system unless you first have an NPI number.
0: Okay, so now we're practicing, and now we're in our private practice, and we're billing. Let's jump to one of the more difficult issues, Incident 2 billing. Explain this to us.
1: Well, I'm pretty convinced, Lisa, that Incident 2 and explaining that process is one of the things that will keep me fully employed until I'm eligible for Medicare myself. It is extremely difficult, and it's confusing. And that's why a number of the more sophisticated and larger practices have decided to abandon Incident 2 in favor of letting a PA bill under their own name. However, if you understand the rules properly and you implement them within the practice, Incident 2 is a billing mechanism that will allow you to obtain an extra 15% of Medicare reimbursement. When PAs bill under their own name and own pen number, or own NPI number, Medicare reimburses at 85% of the physician fee schedule. However, Incident 2, which can only be used in the office or clinic, allows the PA to provide that same medical service but bill that service under the supervising physician at 100% of the fee schedule, therefore gaining an extra 15% in Medicare payment. But Incident 2 does have certain requirements that are very strictly followed by Medicare. And the big requirement is that when the patient comes in for the first time for that medical problem, they must have the physician do the complete examination, establish a diagnosis and treatment plan for the patient on that visit. Incident two kicks in on a subsequent patient visit. When they come back two weeks later, for example, for follow-up care for that condition that's been pre-diagnosed by the physician, the PA at that time can provide all the care for the patient. The physician does not have to see, touch, or treat the patient. The PA can do the entire visit. But as long as there is a physician on site in the practice, when the PA provides that follow-up care, the service provided by the PA can be billed by or under that supervising physician who's there in the practice.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Michael Poe, Vice President of Health Systems and Reimbursement Policy for the American Academy of Physician Assistance. and we're discussing physician assistance and Medicare. Okay, Michael, so when you say it, it sounds so easy but in real life practice it's really complicated let's give some real life examples a patient comes in and it's a new patient and i'm seeing the patient and a physician is on site does the physician need to walk in and make the care plan document in the chart or can they just sign off on my chart what are the rules there
1: yeah that's an important point because people are confused about this they tend to believe that if a physician sticks his or her head in the door and says hi to the patient or co-signs the chart or reviews the chart with the PA after the patient is gone that somehow entitles them to some kind of additional billing recognition, and it does not. Physician code signature may be a part of individual state law. It may be a practice style that's followed in the practice, but it really doesn't mean a whole lot to Medicare in terms of the billing process. What is clearly important under Incident 2 is that the physician personally perform that first visit, and only during the subsequent or follow-up visits can the PA provide the full range of care and build a service under the Incident 2 provision. But what's equally challenging is that you may have been following a patient for hypertension for the last six months, and they're coming in for a follow-up for that particular problem. And about halfway through the exam, you say, is there anything else, Mrs. Jones, that I can do for you? And if it's a Medicare patient, you're likely to get a number of follow-up conditions. So you might be treating that person for the hypertension, but then a new problem occurs. PAs have the option of treating that new patient or calling the physician into the room to try to treat that new patient and qualify for Incident 2. Because the point is, if the PA provides care for that particular medical problem the first time it shows itself from the patient, then Incident 2 is not allowed to be billed under that provision.
0: Right. See, that's complicated too. Because if you're finishing the visit and you've got your hand on the door and you're on the way out and they say, you know, one more thing before you leave... Now it just went from an incident two to a non-incident two visit.
1: That's correct. And when that patient comes back for a follow-up of both those conditions, you have one that's incident two, one that's being treated by the PA, and it gets very complicated and gray from that point.
0: All right. So I know many PAs who just say, it's too confusing for us, and we're just going to bill under my NPI and receive 85% of the reimbursements. And there's two things I want to discuss with that. One is they're leaving a lot of money on the table. PAs are well-trained, hardworking professionals, and they should be reimbursed properly and maximize that reimbursement for their hard work. And number two is it makes it difficult for PAs to show their value in the practice when billing under incident two, but they can show their value more when they're billing under their own MPI. So there's a benefit there. So what do you recommend?
1: Well, here's the first thing, Lisa. Reimbursement should never drive clinical practice. You treat patients the way you want to treat them in terms of how you'd want to be treated and let the reimbursement fall where it may. And you're absolutely right in terms of What drives this whole thing? Because many times, PAs can see more patients when they bill under their own name and number, flow patients through the practice more quickly, and increase the volume of services they're providing. And that will often take away the 15% discount that they didn't get because it wasn't billed under incident two. So practice patterns are really more important than trying to grab every single dime that's out there. The second part of the question is recognition of the PA. Because we have many situations in which the entire work being done by a PA in a given day or week, is being billed under the supervising physician. That might be appropriate under Medicare. It also might be appropriate from private payers' point of view. But the fact is, at the end of that week or month or year, when we're trying to tabulate or get some idea as to what the net value of that PA has been in the practice, it's very difficult to do because all of the PA's numbers and reimbursement really get captured by the physician. And we can't really tell what revenue is generated by the PA unless we go back and do a very laborious of the medical records.
0: Exactly. So what do you recommend?
1: I think that every healthcare professional ought to be identified within the system. Now, I know there are ways under many billing software programs to recognize both a billing provider and a rendering provider. But short of having that ability within your billing software, I think people ought to be recognized and PAs ought to be able to bill under their own name and number, thereby reducing any problem or concern about fraud and abuse.
0: In our practice, we have an electronic health record, and we do. We have a supervising and rendering, and so the PAs are seen as the rendering regardless of how they bill. So I realize that the majority of practices don't have that ability, and that's something I hear a lot.
1: That's correct, and PAs get lost in the system. So when we're talking about some of the new government programs that track quality, that track prescribing, that track outcomes, we're not going to be able to get hard data on physician assistance because a lot of times... Their services are simply unreportable within the system.
0: So what you're saying is consider billing at the 85% rate, being more efficient, billing under your own number, doing more work, doing quality work, and perhaps we'll have a better outcome in the end.
1: I think that's absolutely true.
0: There have been many changes in Medicare payment fees, and recently there was a reprieve from a 22% payment decrease. Explain to us what that really means.
1: Well, Lisa, for the past nine years, we've been going through this cat and mouse game and it really bases itself upon something called the SGR, which is the sustainable growth rate. And that's a rather archaic process that tabulates what Medicare is going to pay to all healthcare professionals based on a number of different variables. And one of the variables that comes into play here happens to be the volume of services being provided by PAs, physicians, and other healthcare providers. Medicare put a fix in the system which said that the more services you provide, the less money the system is going to pay you because they were very concerned about healthcare professionals gaming the system. That is, when they started cutting rates, they were concerned that there would be an increase in volume of services provided so that physicians, PAs, and others could make up the differential. Well, that hasn't happened, but unfortunately, that provision, that variable has been left in the SGR, and it means that each and every year, there is a threat of a cut in Medicare payments that goes anywhere from 10 to 25%, depending on the year. And each year, Congress comes to the rescue at some point during the year or at multiple times during the year to wipe out that potential decrease, because Congress and the Medicare program understand that Medicare is not the highest payer in the marketplace, and a 20 or 22 percent cut would be unsustainable and would really lead to access problems for most Medicare beneficiaries.
0: Well, I would like to thank my guest, Michael Poe, for helping us become better practitioners by increasing our knowledge of Medicare guidelines. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show.
1: It's been my pleasure, Lisa. You've been
0: listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.